0: Good day and welcome to the final episode of season 8 on Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. Now for episode 80 I thought we would uh, end with a contemporary film that attracted a lot of attention and was just a popular all-round film so for today's episode we shall be talking about the action-adventure film The Martian. Adapted from a novel by Andy Ware and directed none other by Ridley Scott. The film stars Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, Michael Pina, Jeff Daniels, Chiwetel E.G. Ford, Sean Bean, Kate Mara and Sebastian Stan. Who else to direct a space film like this than Ridley Scott himself? Danny Boyle once said in an interview that if you look at the history of directors that have directed a space movie, they usually never return back to the genre, himself being an example when he directed Sunshine. Kubrick when he directed Space Odyssey, Michael Bay with Armageddon, Ron Howard of Apollo 13, Christopher Nolan of Interstellar, Paul Anderson with Event Horizon. The genre is simply a nightmare. People never really t- like kind of revisit it. It ty- sort of takes a special kind of person to be able to get a grip on the genre to make one movie, let alone two. That's set in the outback of space. Danny Ball did go on to mention that exceptions to this rule, of course, is none other than, like I said, Ridley Scott. The man has visited the genre four times, obviously the first being in his early film, Alien, back in 1979, then its prequel, Prometheus, and later on the sequel to that, Alien Covenant. In between Prometheus and Covenant, he adapted Andy Weir's space drama, The Martian. Who else better to direct a space movie? Andy Ware, thanks to The Martian, is an American novelist and an ex-computer programmer. His father was a physicist and his mother an electrical engineer. So you can see where the inspiration for his ex-job came in from the details or aspects of the main character or the whole story in general of The Martian. As most writers, he grew up reading a lot of classics, usually science fiction's works like Arthur Clarke and uh, Frank Herbert. His first steps into the real world was working as a programmer for several different companies, After a stint with those, he began converting his hobby into actual writing. At first, writing was fun. He wrote on websites for years, some geeky comedy space series called Casey and Andy featuring mad scientists. And also, like most writers, you know, failure usually hits them before succeeding later on. I mean, he failed to publish his first attempt of a novel, which was called Theft and Pride. But it wasn't until The Egg, a short story which got serious attention, and people started making films about it on YouTube. Nothing serious, but... It was after then did he write The Martian because he was a little established to the the YouTubers and sort of the, the black market or the black web. He did it as a sort of project to be as scientifically accurate as possible. So with his background, he did classes and he did research into like orbital mechanics, the life on Mars and how theoretically you could do things on Mars, the history of spaceflight and, of course, botany. He published The Martian for free on his website. And after a few weeks, there were a lot of people requesting to make it available to other networks so people could see it. So he chose to publish it on, uh, I think it was Amazon Kindle for 99 cents. After a while, this 99 cent piece of work made its way into the bestsellers for Amazon Kindles. After a while, um, a literary agent sort of just approached him, sold the rights and it became a novel that featured on the best-selling list on the New York Times. And three years later... Ridley Scott decided to adapt it into the film that we've come to love and known of the same title. Now after The Martian became a blockbuster movie, everything that he wrote would have strict attention paid to it now, especially after the success of what The Martian did or you know did for some of the actors for Ridley Scott and just how popular it was for every demographic he actually wrote a prequel to the ready player one book set in the same universe called Lassero he later wrote Artemis which is my favorite book of his set in 2090 on the moon and his third novel which was released a year after a project called Project Hail Mary, another book revolving around an astronaut in a coma. Apparently, Ryan Gosling is slated to produce and star in this movie in a couple of years' time. No word yet on Artemis, though. However, there are talks about um, this after the success of The Martian. So The Martian was, uh, like I said, very successful. It was nominated for seven Oscars, which is quite a thing for sci-fi films to be nominated for. Science fiction doesn't get its due credit at the Oscars, mainly dramas, biopics, wars, or general romances. Usually win Best Film. Very rare as a science fiction film or action space blockbuster wins film, let alone get nominated. I mean, in the history of the Oscars, only five or six uh, horror films have been nominated. Only one one which was Silence of the Lambs, if you class that as a horror i class it more as a thriller but i've said this on my exorcist podcast to so give that a listen what i haven't mentioned though is space movies and their relationship with the academy awards i mean just like the horror genre only one science fiction film has ever won the oscar for best picture um and 11 have been nominated and most of them in the last 10 years so one came extremely close and that was avatar but that was swept aside shockingly by hurt locker um i mean the other films that have been nominated of course is you know are The Martian, um, that we're discussing, Arrival, which is a fantastic film, Mad Max, if you want to class that as science fiction, Gravity, rightfully, Inception, District 9, E.T., Star Wars, the 1977 movie, and The Clockwork Orange. Most of these I've actually done a podcast on, so give them a listen. Now, Gravity, when that came out, was a monumental step into recognition for the genre when, in, I think it was 2013, it was nominated for 10 Oscars winning seven of them, making it the most successful space movie ever done. It did come out sort of at the right time, though, so it did have a bit of luck playing into its hands. I think, well, obviously the director sort of knew the timing of when to make this movie because 3D was on a high at the time. HD was also on the rise, was only out for like three, four years after that. And so that had a lot uh, lot to do with it. I mean, Avatar as well got the timing exactly right because Avatar came out when HD on Blu-ray was just coming out, so that was one of the first films to have blu-ray or high definition so these films just uh, are due to timing so that's why I think this film is very um, popular as well because not because of the timing but because it there was no luck involved it was just a very good movie done by uh, adapted by a very good book The Martian like I said was nominated for seven Oscars however it didn't win a single one I mean at the Golden Globes it was nominated into the musical and comedy section and caused some controversy um, and a lot of conversation I mean yeah, there is a lot of funny one-liners and Matt Damon, you know, delivers the comedy elements well for the Hollywood Foreign Press to nominate the film in a comedy section. Though, it was just a bit of an insult. It's like nominating, you know, Armageddon for a comedy. I mean, it, I mean, Armageddon, there is a, a lot of funny lines in it, but it's an action blockbuster film. It's, you know, it's sort of a drama in at the end of it. You know, most of these films are at the core are a drama, but there you go. Many though they did. I mean, they thought they would get the recognition, and they did get the recognition. But there were just too many films that were deemed worthy of winning the prestigious Best Film Award in the drama category. So, in the Golden Globes, uh, you have two separate categories: you have the, dra- the drama film, and then you have the comedy and musical film. So, it, it, basically, what they're trying to do is they're going to—they're try- trying to show recognitions of films that normally wouldn't be able to um, in the comedy and romance. And that's probably what they did with the Martian. Uh, for that year, though, Spotlight was the big film that came out that year, along with fellow sci-fi favorites Mad Max, which actually won the most awards at the Oscars that night, but not, um, but not the top five, um, like best film, best actor, best actress. This was also the year that Leo won for The Revenant, so we had a massive, massive, uh, big competition for dramatic films. So there's no wonder that they sort of slipped The Martian into the comedy and um, romance section. But the Oscars, yeah, didn't um, it was very. Very like shunned away. Um, I mean, if you just look at the films that were nominated in 2013, like The Revenant, Bridge of Spies, The Big Short was out that year. Brooklyn came out. Spotlight, which was a big winner. The, um, Brie Lasser film, The Room, that was amazing. The Danish Girl, Carol. Joy came out. Hateful Eight was out that year as well. Steve Jobs, that was a great film. It was a huge and jam-packed year. I mean, Matt Damon, of course, was nominated for Best Actor in the lead and role at the 88th Academy Awards. He was the only nominee out of the five people that were nominated that was actually playing a fictitious person. Everyone else was playing a historical figure of some kind, which I thought was actually quite an interesting fact. I mean, Leo was playing Hugo Glass in The Revenant. Brian Cranston was playing Dalton Trumbo in Trumbo. Michael Fassbender obviously was playing Steve Jobs in the Steve Jobs movie, and Eddie Redmayne was playing Leah Elbe in The Danish Girl. It was also Ridley Scott's first Oscar nomination in 14 years, the last one being for Black Hawk Down, actually. Only the second of Ridley Scott's film to be nominated for Best Picture, the other being Gladiator, which ended up winning uh, Best Film. But there you go. Uh, But yeah, Ridley Scott got his second director uh, nomination um, and also his second Best Film nomination. But yeah, neither won. So they found out when they were trying to advertise this movie that there was a lot of people that thought The Martian was going to be a horror movie with an alien rather than a human being because of this reputation of Ridley with Alien and Prometheus. So they just stuck a massive image of Matt Damon on a poster saying, bring me home, which ended up being the film's main tagline. So The Martian, I mean, the main objective that Andy Weir was aiming for when writing this novel was to, of course, make it as scientifically accurate as possible. However, during an interview, he mentioned there was one massive big inaccuracy that not many people have even mentioned, but he did. So it's a really geeky thing. And if you've read The Martian, you know how in detail he goes. But he said that the atmospheric pressure on the surface of Mars is 600 PA, which is like 0.087 PSI. So basically, in comparison to Earth, that is 0.6 of Earth's mean sea level pressure. It's stupidly low. That's like a fierce... Basically, what I'm trying to say is the fierce storm, like the one at the start of the movie, the one that causes um, Matt Damon's character to get lost... um Wouldn't be that bad. It would be literally a light breeze, a breeze that would simply mess up your hair because of the surface of just because of the atmospheric pressure on Mars. That storm that was happening, the one they were describing, it would literally be like a little gentle breeze on your hair blowing it back. That's all. Also, the sound would travel like it does here because of the low air density, which means you would literally need to stand next to someone and scream your ass off for them to even hear you. But unless you're an orbital engineer, no one is going to notice that. So that. But that's how much detail he was going into. And that's how much of a perfectionist he was. It's like, no one noticed it, but oh, wait a sec, this is scientifically inaccurate. So when they're talking to each other during the storm, truth is they wouldn't have heard each other. But there you go. Um, so the film was shot in 72 days, according to the novel. Um, but never, you know, it was uh, never specified in the movie. The story is set in 2035. They don't say this in the film, but it is in the novel. Um, Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who you may know from the presenter of The Cosmos, uh, said this film is the most accurate film in regards to astrophysics, which is a good compliment. Saying that, though, there's not many films that really tackle the astrophysics in detail like this movie. I mean, the Think... The opposite end of the spectrum is Armageddon, where they actually show this movie to NASA candidates to see how many mistakes they can point out, which is always funny. Apparently, it's over 200 mistakes. The film was... Um, yeah, the film is... I still love Armageddon, but it hasn't carried well over the test of time, but there you go. So the film was filmed ahead of schedule, which saved the film's budget by $2 million. So that's just how experienced Ridley Scott is. So, you know, obviously, he's revisited the space genre three or four times now, so he knew how to do it quicker. A real potato farm was built at the studio to track the real life development and was used for the filming as well of it. So that was all cool. And Matt Damon, I mean, no wonder he got an Oscar nomination for his role. He was alone in a studio for five straight weeks filming his solo scene. So he admitted he didn't even see his co-stars until the premiere of the movie, which is just very, you know... Sort of reflects how he's playing the character, so it's good. There is a scene at the end, though, when he comes into contact with him for the first time in two years when he gets all emotional. That scene wasn't actually meant to be in the script, that was done just in one take, and no one expected him to do it. And Ridley Scott was, you know, really impressed with it. And was like, Yeah, let's just keep that in the movie. So, yeah, it always uh, uh, kills me that scene. I love it. Yeah, but it must have been you know easy to do it since he was doing you know five straight weeks with himself and then he finally gets to work with the other actors. I mean, to get this film as scientifically accurate as possible, like Andy Weir wanted, NASA actually consulted on the movie to certain aspects to correct the maths, the space travels, I mean, the rescue back to Mars. I mean, the whole thing, it was done in such prestigious form. So you have to sort of love this movie for how detailed it is. But here we go. So Ridley Scott, as seasoned as he is with space movies, found this film fairly simple to film. I mean, the ego to say that, honestly. He, but he's completely puzzled and still to this day. I mean, so he said he found this movie very easy to do. And obviously so, because he's done this genre like three, four times. Um, but he said one thing that he was like completely like had no idea how to do was, um, was the hexadecimals, the language or alphabet used to communicate in this movie. So... He didn't have to learn it, but I mean, he's directing this scene, so he kind of has to have an idea of it. He just couldn't understand it and trusted that whoever explained it to him understood it well enough. I mean, I always say read the book before the film, but it's not always necessary. However, when things don't quite make sense to you in the film, the answers are found in the book. I mean, Ridley Scott is very nonchalant. I mean, for Blade Runner, he didn't even read the book. Um, What's it called? Uh, Electric Sheep. I'm dreaming of Electric Sheep, that film. Uh, that book. Uh, He was just very nonchalant. I don't know if he read The Martian or not, but I assume he had, but um, I wouldn't take me past... I I wouldn't put him past him if he hadn't read The Martian because he's very visual more than story orientated. Um... But yeah, uh, so how does Mark Watney know so much? Well, in the film, we know he's a botanist, so we believe he knows how to grow potatoes from human waste. But what about the other stuff? I mean, in the book, it is explained that he has two master's degrees, one in botany and the other in mechanical engineering, which will explain how he knows the things in the movie. But in the movie, however, he has a PhD in botany and no engineering background. So there's more a screenplay issue rather than anything else. But we can just assume he's an all-round smart guy, you know. But like most films, names of ships or general personification is never done out of thin air. There are always things that, like, you know, like the Titanic meaning big, or Apollo meaning everything basically including poetry, space and the sun. Names always have a meaning. I mean, in this film, the name of the mission is the Ares 3. Now, just coming off reading Stephen Fry's mythology book, I can tell you why. I don't have to even look this up. Ares, of course, is the Roman name for Mars, the god of war. That's self-explanatory. The name of the large ship where the whole crew is travelling back and from Earth to Mars is Hermes, and that is the greek god of messengers hermes is also you know does make a lot of sense though um because it's the patron of protectors of travelers as well so it's a very fitting name and i'm sure they've looked this up to sort of make sure they call the same things you know make sure there's a meaning behind the names like i said you know nothing no matter how small are done by accident i mean if you really want to stretch this too matt damon plays a guy called mark which is the English version of the Latin name Marcus, which literally translates as of Mars. So that's interesting as well. I have no idea if Andy Ware meant to do that, but there you go. And they measure the days by saying the word soul. I mean, that's very, you can probably figure it out. Soul 15, soul 29, soul, whatever. I mean, that is the Latin word for sun. So another interesting thing about this is the hierarchy of command, which is never fully explained in the movie. And I don't think you really need to as well, but I mean, we know Jessica Chastain's character plays Commander Lewis, so she's in charge, hence the title Commander. But after that, we just assume they are all similar levels of expertise. But according to Andy Ware in an interview, they do have an order of hierarchy, and it goes like this: so it goes Lewis, then it goes Martinez, played by um, Michael Pina, then Vogel, then Sebastian, then uh, Johansson, and then Watney, which is the part I found most interesting. He's the least important, you know. He's apparently the in the in the, food, in the sort of food of The food chain here, he's the less important person on their crew. And he's the one that gets left behind and stranded, and the sacrifice they make to get like the lowest qualified person on the ship. And I found that a very interesting message as well. But one thing I do love about The Martian, and it's quite rare to find in movies, is the film doesn't really have any antagonistic characters, no villains. Everyone has their own opinions, yes, but their agendas are all matched up to bring Mark back from Mars. And this is why I think this film was shown a lot of recognition at the Academy Awards. I guess one could consider that Mars is the antagonist in this film, but it's not really a real thing, is it? But if you really wanted to stretch the boat, you could say that. I mean, the closest thing to a villain in this movie is probably Jeff Daniels' character as the space director, but he has some good intentions like everyone else, and he doesn't actually do anything malicious in this movie. I mean, it's interesting in this film, he plays a man from Houston, and this this is me being a geek as well, and it's his debut film. He also plays a man from... um, in a, in a what's it called? If he plays a man from Houston in a film called *Terms of Endearment*. That film with Jack Nicholson, and that was Jeff Daniels' first film back in 1983. And Jack Nicholson plays an astronaut in this movie, so I thought that was interesting as well. But like most films based on books, you have certain comparisons that you want made into the film if you've read the book. I mean, you always, always remember though that there needs to be this friendly emotion when someone or something isn't mentioned in the film that is in the book i mean you get emotionally attached to a book and you expect to see everything in that book on the film i mean a lot of people do get rather emotional about mundane stuff in books that never make it into the films like the look of hermione in harry potter or harry potter's eyes all with valid reasons i understand that but you have to understand to make the reasons to make the film the best that the director sees for it and the best that they can do with the actors you know is uh is the only way they can do it. And if you want to know why, by the way, Harry Potter's eyes are not green or blue or whatever colour it's meant to be, or Hermione doesn't have buck teeth or is ugly, listen to my Harry Potter podcast. Um, but the reason I chose to focus this season on films adapted from books is because we have hit a stint in the cinema industry. Films are now... Unoriginal, we are bleeding out remakes, sequels, prequels, and adaptations, which is in effect has forced me to read more and see the developments on how they recreate a book into a different medium. Now, June, which is a you know, which is coming out this winter, is a good start. I mean, reading the Frank Herbert book and seeing how Denis, the director, is going to transform one of the greatest science fictions book into a 3 hour epic. The same, of course, was done here with The Martian. I mean, I read the only thing that Andy Weir was annoyed that didn't make it into the film was a simply a small exchange between Mark and Teddy played by um, Jeff Daniels in the movie. And basically he contacts Mark in the middle of the night and goes, what are you thinking about? And Mark goes, how can Aquaman control whales when whales are mammals? I mean, it's just stupid. And that, and, and that's all the scene is. That's literally, that dialogue was all, it was all in a book. And it's a really, so they even shot the scene as well. And they didn't make it into the movie. It was literally like maybe 20 or 30 seconds. And I assume the reason it didn't make it into the film was the character of Teddy in this film, you know, to make him sure he's level-headed. it doesn't show any emotional attachments to his mission, which I think was a correct, you know, it's a correct move in terms of making a movie. Much like how Ed Harris never communicates directly with Tom Hanks at any point during Apollo 13, even though Tom Hanks is in the commander of the ship and Ed Harris is the chief of the control room. And it does add an interesting development to these characters as well. We always have these changes in films, and it's completely different from the book. You have to treat it as a separate reinterpretation of the story and go in knowing not everything is going to be the same, but rather just enjoy someone's vision who has paid to you know, best satisfy the majority of what they've read in this book. I mean, that's all they're trying to do, and it's amazing how many films that are based on great novels. So my advice is write a great novel and publish it for 99 cents on Amazon Kindle because you never know. And B, just read loads of books because one of them may be turned into a movie at some point, considering how unoriginal films are these days, and producers are after ideas all the time. Not back to the drawing board, it's back to the libraries, the shelves, the top ten bestsellers at the New York Times, or rather the hidden gems in the dusty old corner of a used bookstore. Who knows though, right? But that's where the world's going to now. People are going after books, which is why I've dedicated this whole season to books. I mean, some of the books that have been adapted are amazing and it's amazing how they've interpreted it and how how different it is from the book. I just read Jurassic Park and I, I think 15% of the novel is in the movie and the rest is sort of spurred out in the other movies or just not done at all. But the book, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think... I mean, the film is one of my favorite films ever. But it's one of the best films ever done. It's about dinosaurs and it was one of the first to do it properly. But uh, the book is so good. And if you can get your hands on Jurassic Park, the novel by Michael Crichton, it it's probably better than the film. It's so good. But that's saying, that's saying something though. But anyways, that's all I have time with with um, season eight. And that concludes films based on books. I hope you've enjoyed this season. So join me in a couple of weeks where we will start season nine, where we will be looking at oscar-winning films most specifically best picture winners i've got 10 great podcasts in the winter month coming up with a few specials in between so yeah tune in for that Anyway, though so, but you can subscribe to me on spotify amazon google and itunes and please drop me a follow on instagram that's film exploration a h all lowercase all one word and once again thank you for listening to film exploration with ash hurry